Hi, folks. We are back here. I'm excited to be joined by Commissioner of Fish and Game, Doug Vincent Lang. How you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing really well. I've never been in, actually in this building, and uh, I walked in. There's a lot of activity here. Yeah, this is summer. Summer in Alaska. People are going out to get their food to fill in their freezers, and they're getting their permits, and yeah, it's exciting. There's also all these cool animals on the wall, and it's very, very good. This is a little more exciting than other departments I visited. Yeah, so let me tell you a story about that. About, about um, five years ago... I was dealing with the BBC, and they came into the building here to interview me on polar bears and other endangered species. And the guy was looking at all the um, mounts on the wall, and he goes, what's that about? So those are all the animals that are available for harvest in Alaska. He goes, they were killed? I said, oh, yeah, wow. that's kind of what we do in Alaska. He was like a British British guy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting discussion, start point. But, yeah, that, this is what we, what our job is, is provide people fish and game for their freezers and so their foods. You- yeah, that's what I want to talk about, the department, um, the role, all that. The, but first, I want to talk about a little about you. You've been here a long time in fish and game, right? Working. Yeah, so I grew up in Wisconsin, um, spent first 20-some years there. I got an undergraduate degree in population dynamics from Wisconsin Green Bay, but learned to hunt and fish as a young boy with my grandfather. You know, was, uh, population dynamics. Yeah, population. So the study of how populations respond in their environment and how factors affect their production rates. So then... I graduated in 78, came to Alaska, got accepted to graduate school up in Fairbanks and studied biological oceanography and got my degree in 1980, master's degree in biological oceanography and and did a little bit of time on the North Slope working between Fairbanks and and the North Slope of Alaska and decided I need a little bit more summer than that. So came down and started with the Department of Fish and Game in, I think, 1981 and worked on the Susitna Hydro Project for about four or five years. Oh, wow. What did you do on the slope? Like oil and gas stuff? or um, OCS. We okay. were doing ocean, chemi- chemical and biological oceanography out in the ocean, near shorefront there. So when you first started with Fish and Game, were you more fish-focused because of the I ocean? I was fish-focused. So, so it was a Susitna Hydro project. It had three different components. It had an anadromous component, then it had a resident component, then it had a habitat, habitat component. So I was in the habitat component. So we would go out and just, great job. 28 days a month, be out in the field sampling fish assessing their habitat and how the dam could potentially affect that habitat and the the fish production in the susitna river so would you guys have a camp or would you we'd go out for four, 14 15 days at a time and stay at a camp i stayed at telkeaton and gold camp gold creek camp up in the middle fork of the susitna yeah just wow a lot of good memories learned how to drive a riverboat just run around so it was good so then after that i um came back the susitna project ended i came back and i did some time in resurrection bay as an assistant area management biologist down there and for sport fish. And then I spent the next 20 some years in the sport fish division doing a wide range of different issues from halibut, mostly marine fishery issues. But I was also as a regional management coordinator for South Central Alaska here for a while. And then I was the assistant director for sport fish for about three or four years and did a lot of stuff on trout, wrote the, a lot of the trout management plans across the state and did the um, habitat plan for the Kenai River, just did special projects across the state, wrote a shark management plan. And then I... Shark. Shark, yeah. We were harvesting sharks, and we figured we better get a management plan in place because they were not in federal rules 
and they weren't in state rules. So we actually put a you know precautionary management plan together for sharks so we could learn something about the harvest rates. Wow. Yeah. So how how did the uh, path to commissioner happen? So so then I then I took a career change and I spent a little bit of time in in the in the commissioner's office. I was a special assistant to the commissioner and did a bunch of policy type work. I did um, endangered species work for the commissioner. I did Arctic policy, ocean policy, um, a little bit of work on on intensive management. That's, that's a previous commissioner, or um, I did it under Denby and Cora. Cora Campbell, yeah, okay. and Mackay Campbell. Back okay, then. and then an opportunity came up, and I served my last four years as the wildlife director, or and because um there was vacancy, and the, both the Cora and the Cora Campbell, previous commissioner, and the governor asked me to fill that role, and I so gladly did it. So I was, learned a lot about wildlife. That was for a fishing game as well. Yep. That role, and then four years ago, um, four years ago, I was retired. I retired with the Walker administration, and that's a good life. So you got re, you got reactivated. Yeah, yeah. So w- when the opportunity presented itself, when people pr- spoke to me about it, I actually thought long and hard about it because retirement is good. You know, you get to set your own schedule. But I was ready for the challenge, and and I thought I talked to my wife about it, talked to my family about it because I have grandkids and I was spending a lot of time with them, and I knew this job would be a real time yeah, was- commitment and. It would be a personal commitment to do this. Job. I was going to ask if you had a family. What, what they, yeah. So they were. Was your wife kind of like, "Hey, we're we're doing we're traveling." Well, she's or? retired, so yeah. So we we talked about it long and hard, and we came to the conclusion this is the right thing to do. And the department was good to me for thirty four years, so I thought I could give something back to the department. So you, um, I think maybe in some level you might be public enemy number one because uh, you you grabbed Rick Rydell, <laughs> Rick Green from uh, the radio show, and I think a lot of his old fans are not very. They they always. Tell me, where's I want to hear Rick on the radio again. Well, now we have Rick Rickin for the good side. <laughs> Rick Rick is is. A have you heard that at all from anybody? Like, hey, we we want Rick on the radio. <laughs> well, I think Rick brings a valuable voice to the department, a voice that hadn't been heard from the inside of the department, working inside of it. So I value his input and I value his judgment. And and when I give him something to do, he gets it done. So I'm big. I'm big Rick fan. Good. Um, so it's been what six months, I guess seven seven months. But since you, I mean, you were appointed in December, right? Right after I was appointed December third. It's my first day. Yeah. So how's it how's it been the last six months? Nonstop. <laughs> it's it's been good. It's been it's been good. So one of the things I, I had a couple things I wanted to do, and we had a shared vision with the um, with the governor on. One is public trust. Like these are not my resources. They're not the department's resources. We're entrusted by the public to manage these resources. So they're, they're their resources, and for us to have their trust in how we manage them, we basically have to be out there talking to them. So I've been spending a lot of time this last six months out talking to people, finding out what they think about fish and game resources and how they should be managed. So, yeah, it, we've, it's been a whirlwind. It's been from southeast Alaska. I spent two weeks ago in the Yukon. Last week I spent in Bristol Bay, and this week, this month I'll be spending much more time in Cook Inlet, but been getting out just talking to people, and it's been enlightening. So that's one of my questions is, you know, I know there's a constitutional, that's probably the big answer, but you know, why do we manage fish and game, and how do we manage it, and, and what's the what's the role of fish and game in, in all of that? So, so constitutionally, we have a sustained yield mandate in our constitution, which is different than almost any other state in the nation. I think it is different than any, any other state in the nation. So 
there, it's a public trust resource founded in the Constitution, and it's a sustained yield re resource. And the allocation above that sustained yield principle basically falls to two boards, the Board of Game and the Board of Fish. And the department has a responsibility to manage to ensure that we don't, we have fish and wildlife for future generations. And then within any excess within a year, we, we follow the guidelines set by the publicly appointed um, Board of Fish and Board of Game. So the Board of Fish and the Board of Game, more or less, they give you guys your directives or your, your, your kind of vision? or They set the management plans for how we're supposed to allocate fish. So for instance, in, in Cook Inlet, we're supposed to man, ma, manage sockeye salmon for commercial harvest between July 1st and August 15th. But we're supposed to do that in a manner that minimizes the harvest of Kenai River Chinook salmon, Northern District bound fish, and try to minimize the interception of, of coho salmon. So we're trying to balance this metrics of fish that are coming into Cook Inlet to try to give everybody a predictable opportunity to fish and meet their needs. So in the previous, you know, four or five years, there's been years where people have been freaking out. There's no, you know, the salmon are gone. There's no, there's no salmon. But then this year, it seems like there's an abundance of salmon, um, certain types of salmon, I guess. Is that, is that accurate? Or? It's certain types of salmon. So we're having pretty much a statewide poor return of Chinook salmon. Now, there's exceptions to that. Copper River seems to be doing well for Chinook salmon. It looks like the new Shiaka is going to do okay. We're meeting lower ends of escapement into the um, Yukon and Kuskokwim, but in the copper we did well. But in other systems like Northern Cook Inlet, we're not going to meet escapement objectives even without fishing. So king salmon aren't generally doing well across our state. Sockeye salmon seem to be doing much better, but there are exceptions to that. We're not, we're not fishing in Chicknick right now. We may meet our escapement objectives, but we're not going to be fishing in Chicknick. So how do you tra track track them? Are there counters or are there? So, so let's. I I just visited Bristol Bay. So let's talk about Bristol Bay for a second. So, Bristol Bay we is a system that has many a a, a big bay that has many different systems in it, all lake fed. So it's a big sockeye producer. So. The goal for us is to try to manage that fishery with maximizing the harvest opportunity for commercial s salmon fishermen out there in a way that we can still meet our escapement objectives. So what we have is a we call the port molar line. And it's basically a line that we go out and do test net fishing out in the ocean, which is the entry into 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 Bristol Bay. And f we every 10 miles out, we do a set with a gill net. We get a catch catch rate out there we take genetic samples send them into anchorage and within two days we have the genetics back to know what our catch rate is for that for that sector of the line out there and what its origin is so is it going to the quijack is it going to the nushiak or is it going to igigig so you know where you know where it's going right? we know where it's going so wow so so we're we're getting this data in season then we're managing based on sonar counts or tower counts to make sure we're getting our minimum escapements. And in the meantime, we're harvesting sockeye salmon out there. So in a, in a, we're generally harvesting 60 to 70% of what's coming in, still trying to meet our escapement objectives. But it's a, it's a machine out there. So we have, we have the Board of Fish setting our management plans for how we're supposed to manage these fisheries. We have the department managing these fisheries in season with, with all this genetic information and all this catch rate information coming in. So then the fishermen are going out and harvesting fish during the openings. Those fish 
fishermen are then giving it to the processors. The processors have to have sufficient capacity to be able to accept those fish from the fishermen. So we have to time our openings to make sure that we're pushing them through the processing plants. And then we got the, the um, distribution network, which is basically run by freezer capacity and getting it barged out and getting it to market. So it's just a lot it, of moving parts, a lot of moving parts that all have to play together. And it basically results in, you know, you know, fishery that's operating what about so I, I i and i'm not a big fisher or hunter but isn't one of the fisheries done didn't they like just raise the quota or allowed people to catch more fish or salmon so we had a really good run in the early run russian river the russian so, right that yeah. one yeah so so the the kenai river this system this year where we've met our escapement objectives for early run chinook salmon in that system but we never fished we had basically just catch and release fishing, so we, we never har- had any harvest opportunity. That's why we met our goals. So we were very conservative there. But at the same time, we had sockeye salmon hit the Russian River, and there is no commercial fishery on those. So we, for the first time ever, liberalized harvest to nine daily, 18. In right, fishing. that's the number. Nine. Okay. Yeah. I think people are pretty excited we, about we that. We probably could have gone higher than that, but we wanted to rotate people through that fishery. So what's the, um, in all of the fishing and, and even hunting too, what, what, what's your relationship or your, what's the role of the, the, you know, the wildlife troopers? I mean, they enforce the hunting, fishing regulations, right? Right. So out in Bristol Bay, there's, there's lines set and it's called line fishing. So these boats are fishing right up against the line. So right now I think we have almost eight troopers out there doing enforcement of, of fishing, both in open areas and making sure that they're staying within the district when they're fishing. So you guys working with them directly or do they just kind of know the laws and they do their own thing we interact with them quite a bit we have joint offices in bristol bay we have you know yeah no we're talking to them constantly um so speaking of fish um something i wanted to ask you about and again i'm not i'm not an expert by any means but the fish wars we hear about a lot between i guess it's commercial and sport right or subsist is that kind of the way it well fish wars are, are what does that mean to you fish wars well at the bottom of it kind of means it's good because people really fundamentally care enough to be fighting over fish. And, Mm -hmm. you know, while that may sound kind of weird because it makes our job hard, people do fundamentally care at the bottom of it of how we're managing our fish and game resources. We could be in a state out east where people don't care and, you know, fish and wildlife aren't important to them. So we have, they're important enough that people are fighting, fighting wars over who gets them. Um, Fish wars are going to be inevitable. They're, they're, they're going to happen across our state. There's, there's a lot, they're prized resources, and everybody wants their fair shot at them. And how you find that right balance and how you find that right predictability to give everybody opportunity to, to meet their needs is challenging. So the crux of it is that there's the commercial side, and then there's the sport or the, I guess, subsistence side. So, so on, a, on a general picture, my number one priority in the state is to provide for subsistence needs. It's a state law. We have a subsistence priority. So we provide that. But the, the first thing we provide for is we got to make sure we have escapement. We have to f- provide for sustained yield. And we have to provide for the future. So my number one priority is to make sure that we're meeting our, our escapement objectives for providing future fish runs. Number two is I provide, provide for subsistence. That's a statewide priority. And then I manage commercial, sport, and personal use, which are all equal in terms of the picture, based on the guidance that's given to me by the Board of Fish. Okay. And they have management plans that help guide how I'm supposed to 
give priority between those different users and how I'm supposed to manage those fisheries within that context. And each group uh, kind of has, they have their own advocates or groups or people that kind of fight for their group or. So, so let's just look at Cook Inlet for for example, because it's happening right now. So from July 1st through August 15th, I'm supposed to manage Cook Inlet for commercial priority for sockeye salmon, but in a way that minimizes harvest of Chinook salmon going into the Kenai River and northern and fish going to the northern district. So right now we're projecting to get somewhere around the order of three million sockeye salmon come into the Kenai River, and wow, three million. Yeah, and we're not projected to we're projected to be at the lower end of our king escapement objective. So if I fish the set net fisheries, I get some king interception. So and that's a way you can start sucking up sockeye salmon to meet that commercial priority. If I bring the drifters and open them up, then all of a sudden I get the potential of intercepting northern district fish. So it's a balancing act whenever mm-hmm. you have a single opening as to trying to fulfill those management plan requirements in a way that minimizes the impacts of the other user groups. So, you know, this is kind of a theoretical question, but if, let's say if there was zero management, if it was just a free-for-all and all these fish and hunt, game and everything, what would happen? Would, would they quickly just be over hunted and fished and disappear? I would like to think not, but I, th- I think we have a Department of Fish and Game that assures for sustained yield. So we will not hesitate to close hunts and fisheries when it's necessary to protect it for future generations. And the first decision I had to make as Commissioner of Fish and Game was to actually close the northern district of Cook Inlet to Chinook salmon fishing. So we closed commercial, we closed sport, and we closed personal use, and we also closed um. We, we restricted subsistence fishing in order to ensure that we had fish coming back to produce fish for future generations. So another issue I wanted to ask you about is the, the bear the bear situation in Anchorage. I, I have a friend who is a pretty active social media user. She grew up on the hillside. Um, husband and her, her and husband kids moved back with a family, saving for a house, and they're way up kind of middle hillside, and she has these cameras, and I mean, it seems like every day for the last few months there's black bears, multiple black brown bears, and and they just go in the pro- property, they, they're by the cars, and there's other folks on a lot of videos, I'm sure you've seen some of the videos, of bears and that one running down Huffman. And she had said that growing up, it wasn't nearly as big of an issue, it was kind of rare to see a bear. So you know, are there more bears? Is it, you know, just Facebook makes it feel, people think there's more? And if, if there are more, what's the solution? I mean, some people want to kill them, and I think a lot, a lot of people kind of agree with that, but other people say, well, we have to exist with in nature with the bears. So I guess what's your it's a big question? Well, yeah, that is a big question. So when I, when I was wildlife director, I thought my biggest problem would be bears in villages. There's not a problem with bears in villages because bears don't come into villages because they know they're going to get shot. Because they kill them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Anchorage, 30 years ago, there was bear hunting all around Anchorage. And you know, there was the Chugach State Park was open to bear hunting. There was a lot more opportunity to hunt bears than there is right now. Um, and Anchorage has grown. They've occupied a lot more of the habitat that bears occupy. So, you know, we have more bears than we had long ago because we're not hunting them nearly to the extent we used to. We're encroaching in their territory, so we have a lot more human bear interactions. Are there things we can do in garbage? Certainly. But my number one concern is public safety. I do not want to be the commissioner that sees a young kid grabbed off a front yard and mauled. Huh. So we are going to err on the side of public safety in our urban communities. So does that mean they're going to start? We're going to, we're going to remove bears that are a problem bear. Wow, that's, I think a lot of people would be happy to hear that yeah. because 
The the you saw the video of the bear on Huffman? Yes. Right. I mean it was that thing must have weighed, I don't know, thousand yeah. pounds, eight hundred pounds, it was going. Yeah. That's not to say that we shouldn't, you know, be responsible in dealing with our garbage, but we should also be not afraid to take problem bears out that are causing public safety concerns. So when a bear kind of realizes, oh, there's food here, they 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 that's where they start going. That's it's hard to, I mean there was a deal years ago, a couple where Walk Bill Walker Pardon the bears, but then they went. They kind of came back anyways, right? To another. Well, he, he took four bears that were out in Government Hill and, and decided that it would be better to translocate them. So he put them onto the Kenai Peninsula, and they immediately came into Hope, where they caused problems and eventually were killed over there. So removing bears doesn't solve the problem. Uh, so let's talk about, um, we talked a lot about fish, but hunting, you know. So we have bears, we have moose, and other populations. What... um. What's going on with with those? And I guess in, around Anchorage and around the state. And um, how's that one? How's how's that going? Well, let's talk today. We have this nice smell of smoke in the air. Mm-hmm. I consider that the smell of moose habitat being created on the Kenai Peninsula. Really? So the yeah. So there's a couple things we can do. We're we are definitely going to actively manage our wildlife populations to provide food resources for Alaskans. So that means we can either do predator control or we can manage habitat. And having fires is problematic because people don't like smoke in there, you know, on the hillside, and it threatens cabins. And we should be concerned about them threatening cabins and people's people's health. But at the same time, when we have the opportunity to let some areas burn, we should take those opportunities because that creates new habitat for moose, and moose production will increase. The last big fire that was in the Kenai really increased moose production in that area for decades afterwards. So, and in, in some areas, we have we get into places where you had high ungulate populations, moose or, or caribou, and for whatever reason they have a bad winter or, or a couple of different conditions, you get down into a, a lower number. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens is predators are still at a high number. Those ungulates are at a low number. They're getting into a predation pit. So we're not going to be afraid to manage predator numbers to get us out of that pit so we can get back up into a, a higher number and relieve that predation pressure on those animals. So when it comes to hunting and, I guess, fishing too, uh, do you have any idea what percentage of, of, of all the hunting and fishing in Alaska is done by local people and then what is done by kind of outside, you know, outsiders who are on trips or coming up for well, a little the, vacation? The vast majority of animals are, are harvested by residents of Alaska. Okay. Now, on the fish side, the vast majority of fish in our state are harvested commercially. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that product goes out of our state. But it, it's an economic driver for our state. But in terms of wildlife, the vast majority of animals are harvested by Alaskans. So there was something I was recently t- discussing with somebody, and I guess it's been an issue for a long time. And again, I'm kind of not really a, ex- I don't really get involved in fishing game that much. But it had, had to do with uh, hunting guides and the uh, this concession zone. Um, and I was talking to somebody about it, but basically, there's a as far as, as, far as I understand it, we don't have a policy or a plan for guides. It's kind of like a free. free is that right, or am I? Okay, so um, on federal lands, which is two-thirds of Alaska, there are regulated fishing, I mean hunting guide activities. So you can't just go in and and hunt on federal lands without having a guide concession program. On state lands, there is no program. So what we're ending up is we have open entry into into state lands. Now, there's pluses and minuses to a guide concession program. One is if if you regulate it, the goal is basically to decrease the amount of 
guided, non-guided interactions and get them under a code of ethics that they're operating in. And, and there's some ownership to that area, so there's some reason to be good stewards on it. The bad point is that it, it makes new entry into the guide professions difficult because you have to buy into it or you have to somehow get you're limited in your opportunities to engage into it but right now with two-thirds of the state being controlled the one-third anything we're getting a lot of pressure on the one-third of the state that's that doesn't have any controls in terms of how many guys are participating in those areas so the guides are primarily. So I think it's. So I, I guess before I don't want to interrupt you, but I guess the thing to do is right now I do support looking at that and studying it and figure out whether it's a the right thing to do on state land. So the guides primarily cater to uh, like people from outside of Alaska, right? Coming up to hunt or well, is there local? I, I know if I was going to go sheep hunting right now, I'd probably use a guide. So if if you live here and you're a resident, you can go sheep hunting. You 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 don't need a, a guide, or you can just get a tag. Yes, you, if you're you, out, you you can if you are lucky enough to draw a toke permit, you could go by yourself. But you probably use a transporter to get into there. But if you're from, if you're from outside of Alaska, you have to actually have, yes. you have to use a guide. Yeah, that's a state requirement, or that's a that's a board of game requirement. Okay. I think it's a statute actually, statute. Um, so the other thing, and this came up during the um, the whole board of game d- debate, um, is the aerial wolf hunting. Um, program is that still going on or is that yeah we're still doing predator control across our state i don't know which areas are active right now but let me just touch on predator control because i know it's a sensitive subject so again we're not going to hesitate to use that tool it's a tool in our toolbox and it's proven effective in the past but we just don't go out and just kill all the predators in the area when we do predator control we have to ensure that we're only killing the number of predators that's going to be effective at increasing that moose population but in so killing predators, we have to provide for a sustained yield of predators for future, and we have to provide for the current uses because there's a lot of trapping that goes on in those areas. So, for instance, in some areas, we may remove 40 to 50% of the wolf population. We don't remove 100%. And then we find out that we remove that predation cap. The animals come up, and then probably within 5 to 10 years, those predators are back up to the original numbers. So there's a misbelief that we're just wiping predators off the face of the earth in Alaska. Not the case. So the issue with you know the debate or, or the sensitivity on the predator control, is that people maybe just misunderstand it or people just think we shouldn't kill predators? Is I, it- I think there's a fundamental ethics question at center. And some people just fundamentally don't believe you should be managing wildlife populations as you do landscapes. And they just fundamentally disagree with killing predators. But to me, it's a tool in the wildlife management toolbox, and we're not going to be afraid to employ it. So to be able to go and, and take out some of these bears, for example, on the hillside, is that your decision or is that the Board of Game decision? How, how, how does that get decided? Well, public safety kind of falls into my territory, so we've directed our wildlife staff in South Central Region to, be, to consider public safety when they're making those decisions on problem bears. And this might be a dumb question because I'm not an expert here. But, but. but again, we we put that in the context. We're, we would like to provide additional hunting opportunities, and we've done that to try to harvest some of these bears legally through legal hunts on the base and in Chugach State Park. So this might be a, a dumb question, but there's been you know bear attacks in the past, and they they go find the bear. I mean, how do you? I've always kind of wondered, how do you find the bear? How do you know? I mean, there's so many bears. Yeah, well. Usually an aggressive bear will come back and defend that area. So if we can get there quick enough, we can find genetic samples on the from the mauling and then we can go back and you know what if we kill that bear or the aggressive bear in the area we can find out whether that was a problem bear that we actually had through genetic linkages 
I don't recall. I mean, the last one was was it a, maybe a year or two ago? There was the the high school kid got attacked. Well, there was a runner that was in Eagle River last right. year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you know we went and shot a bear there, but it wasn't that bear. But we we are watching for that bear. So how does it work when you guys go and, and kill a bear? Or wolf, wolf, you send out their employees of fishing game, and they go out and kill it, and then they. What do you guys do with the meat and the fur and all that? So we the furs go into the fur auction, fur Rondi fur auction, and um, the meat usually is just, you know, if it, if it's salvageable, it's given to a charity. And these are fishing game people that do it? Or yeah, it's, it's fishing game people that do it, or public safety's got the, the, they can make that decision too. But it's really based on our guidance. So I guess it's, uh, it's been six months. I mean, are you, are you happy you became commissioner? And what, what's your biggest... Takeaway so far, what's your biggest challenge? Well, my biggest takeaway is I've been, again, traveling the state. I, you know, it's, it's a cursing and a bless. People really care about fishing games. So it can make our lives a lot harder than a lot of other commissioners of departments because people care a lot about fishing game. There's not a week in the newspapers that don't go by with a fishing game story in the front page. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, it, it makes the job hard, but it's a blessing because people care. You know, if people didn't care, we wouldn't have fishing game resources because it would be secondary to their lives. So it's really cool that they care. The other thing, staff. I, as I've traveled this state, the, the quality of the staff that's in the Department of Fish and Game is amazing. You know, the, the people that are making our area management decisions and the scientists that are feeding information into that management program, outstanding. You know, I was in King Salmon office Saturday and Sunday. They're in that office Saturday, Sundays, working hard, you know, Making decisions on whether to open the fishery Sunday afternoon or not. You know they're they're working seven days a week, but dedicated. So you must get based on the passion on fishing game. You must probably have a lot of um, intense interactions with people on meet, public meetings or maybe people calling you. Do you have a lot of? Well, well, people oftentimes care very deeply about the resource, and and they'll get into um, they'll raise their voices every now and then and talk about it. But that's good. You know, we're here to listen. We're so, here to talk. I tell people we may not always agree, but we should be talking. Yeah, some of my friends who are big, you know, hunters and fishers usually um, aren't shy to tell you exactly what they think about something. <laughs> and that's good, you know. I think in the past we, the department has fallen into kind of a defensive mode and, and hunkered down in their offices. And as I've made hires of people, I've I've made it clear that my expectation is you're going to be out talking to people. How, how many people, do you know how many people are... Fishing, fishing game's game? about 2,000 strong. Roughly. Wow, so that's, yeah. that's pretty... Similar. That's the seasonal workforce. And it goes down uh, after... It goes down, and, yeah. But, yeah, we we're, we're, we got people in every place across the state right now managing fisheries and hunts. So. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you is, um, is, there a bi- is, it, is there a huge problem with illegal fishing and hunting? I mean, is it police... And it's such a big state, it seems like it'd be hard to... If somebody goes out in the middle of nowhere and kills something, yeah. how do you know? Um... There probably is some, but I think people are fundamentally ethical. Yeah, there are some people that are going to go out and do things unethically, and, and that's why we have fish and wildlife protection. But, no, I don't think it's a huge problem out there, people illegally fishing. We we catch them. You know, we're, we're out looking. There's big fire. There's big, but what are the penalties for illegally hunting or fishing? They can be severe. You can lose your airplane if you're out, you know, taking big game. You know, you, you can lose your hunting and fishing privileges. For they, they can take fish. everything that was involved in the commission yep. of, wow, so the plane yeah. or the car, the right. four-wheeler, ooh. Yeah, so there's an, there's an incentive to follow up. But, again, I think people are ethical. 
I, I think people care about sustainability. So they're, they're not going to risk their kids not having those opportunities mm-hmm. to go out and hunt and fish. Well, Commissioner, I really want to thank you. I learned a lot by, by doing this, and, and uh, not my forte by a long shot, but I, I do care about it, and I think it's always good to talk about these so issues. So as we're talking to the public, we just got to tell people, don't be afraid to call us. You know, We may not agree at the end of the day, but your insights are critical because it's your resources, it's not ours, and we need to hear from you to tell us how we're doing doing our job in managing these fisheries and hunts. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, and thanks for coming back and stepping back up to be commissioner. It's, uh, okay. Hey, thanks. After, after retirement, huh? Yeah. It must have not been easy call. Well, yeah. we'll do this again sometime in the future, I hope. Hey, All right, folks, time. if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast with me in the future, let me know, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Landline.